pocket. <clears throat> Little Susie, a six-year-old, complained, Mother, I've got a stomach ache. That's because your stomach is empty, the mother replied. You would feel better if you had something in it. That afternoon, her father came complaining they had a severe headache all day. <laughs> Susie perked up, that's because it's empty, she said. You'd feel better if you had something in it. Yes. Okay, so we're going to start in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. We're actually getting there. We're making progress. Yep. And we're going to read verses uh, 1 and 2. And so we talked about, you know, Melchizedek being the king priest who was a type of Jesus Christ in the order that is now um, his order. And uh, it says, now this is the crowning point of what we are saying. We have a magnificent king priest who ministers for us at the right hand of God. He is enthroned with honor next to the throne of the majesty on high. He serves in a holy, holy sanctuary in the true heavenly tabernacle set up by God and not by men. So the crowning point is that all the deficiencies of the old covenant, the need for a continual sacrifice, the separation of king-priest role, uh, the uh, washings and all the rituals and all of that stuff, all of that was on earth and it was a uh, you know, built by men. Yes, God gave the blueprint for the tabernacle and all of that stuff, but it was merely a type in a prophetic picture of what was to come and be the final sacrifice uh, in Jesus Christ. And no, Melchizedek, Joseph, David, Abraham, none of them sacrificed themselves, were resurrected and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Only one is doing that, and that is Jesus Christ, the God-man. So the king priest, unlike Melchizedek, the priest of Aaron, he came as a man, he died... And he was resurrected. This truth is going to be the line in the sand as we progress uh, toward the end of the age. Because some of what we're going to see, and even within the church or uh, Christianity, you know, it's amazing if you study how the left works, there's a hijacking of Christianity. Social reform... Uh, wealth distribution, all that stuff. In fact, Kent showed me this. Um, I'm going to try to refrain from calling him an idiot. Uh, this video of this guy that basically his belief is that God is a, or that Jesus was a good man. And that when the Lord called that one lady who needed deliverance, you know, for her daughter, he called her a dog, he said. That was racist. He called her a dog. And she kept after him, he said, and, and Jesus repented of being a racist. Well, first of all, it does help for you to not sound completely idiotic to look in the original language. And in that culture, what Jesus called her was like a little pet. Not a dog, like a rabid, mangy dog that's you know cast aside. It's a pet that's beloved of the family. But the whole idea behind a lot of the ideas that these people have is that Jesus was just a man. So the fact that he came as man without sin, he did not need to repent of anything, but he came, God became a man, died on the cross and was resurrected on the third day. That will become the dividing line between those who serve him and those who don't. And there needs to be a return to the simplicity of that message. And then, if you look at uh, 1 John, you know, it's not a coincidence that the last world ruler before Jesus Christ, because the enemy always brings his first, and then the Lord does His. So there's usually a counterfeit first, and then the Lord brings His truth. Well, 
he's called the Antichrist for a reason. But he's going to be the leader, along with his false prophet, over a religious system. The religious system was birthed through Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. And it was a collective a collectivism, which is what it removes individual identity from people. You all have to be the same. You all have to speak the same language. You all have to look the same, think the same, etc., etc., etc. That will be resurrected to a very high degree, but we're also seeing it now in politics and culture and media. And so where it says first uh, John chapter four verses one, delightfully love friends. Don't trust every spirit, but carefully examine what they say. Because what you say is what you believe, right? Mm -hmm. So this man that was talking, he legitimately believes he's a Christian or he's actually calling himself one so that other people who are maybe dissatisfied with what they've encountered in church, dissatisfied with religion, that they'll say, oh, well, he, he makes sense, you know. I always wondered about that verse, dog. You know, he called that lady a dog. That didn't seem very nice. Again, look at the original language. It's so frustrating when people come up with these ideas oh. without going into the word. Uh, this morning, it was, I don't think it's coincidence, I'll bring it up, is that Bill, I was listening, Bill Johnson just had a one sentence or just a little thing about that very thing. And he said, you know, that's enough to split people up. But he said, sometimes God... You know, we'll set a fence in front of us because if we can't overcome the offense, we don't have enough strength to hang on to the miracle we're fixing to get. That's true, except that I have found a lot of Christians interpret the scripture the same way that he offended her and she was able to come mm -hmm. over, overcome her offense to receive her miracle, and that's not true. Right. When he called her little pet, she would have known and heard the compassion and mercy in his voice. So yes, I agree with that principle, but when they use that particular example, that's not what happened. One of the best sermons I ever heard was based on that at Bethel, and it was based on that story, and I'm like, I agree with the principle, but again, dig to the original language, because that's not what he said. But yes, sometimes you have to go over your offense. But what I find that most uh, that he will use is he will actually speak to you through someone who is offensive to you. Mm -hmm. That's actually the majority of things I've seen um, is, you know, man, I don't really <coughs> like this person. You have to get past that offense. Right, right. But it's what they say. See, this is so important uh, to determine if they are of God because many false prophets have mingled into the world. Here's the test. For those uh, with a genuine spirit of God, they will confess Jesus as the Christ who has come in the flesh. Now, the Antichrist is literally against the Anointed One, against the Christ. Also, if you look in the original language, it's a substitute for the Christ. That right there tells you how that spirit works. And Antichrist spirit, it loves pulpits. It'll get in a pulpit and it will teach doctrine that is against the Christ, against the Anointed One, because the Christ is the Word of God made flesh. So it's also against the Word. So that's like if you look at Calvinism, it's one of the most destructive doctrines. In fact, because of Calvinism and a misguided interpretation of the sovereignty of God, that's where the whole separation of church and state came in. I mean, if you study the history... Because they would beat people that didn't do what they say. I mean, it's incredible. So Calvinism, the, the crux of it is God has already predetermined he'll be born again. So it caused a salvation anxiety. So people would wonder, am I truly born again? So what it did is it created this desire to perform works to prove that they had been elected or born again. So it took everything into works. What came out of that? Out of works came social justice, wealth redistribution, all of that stuff. And there's just, it's amazing the destructive doctrines. Sovereignty of God is very simple. 
He's sovereign and He made us sovereign. It's very simple. We have a free choice to receive the gift of salvation or to not receive the gift of salvation because He made us sovereign. It's the ability to rule over oneself. In other words, God is ruler. No one rules over Him. He has made us rulers. Therefore, we can choose to not allow Him to rule over us. Does that make sense? So we've got to question these things and what people say, even from pulpits, and yet a lot of people don't go into the original language and study this like they're eating a, a five-course meal. You Like you lay it before you and you get in there and you're like, oh, he wasn't calling her a dog like a bee. You know, he was calling her a little pet. Totally different. So then it says, they will confess, blah, blah, Verse 3, everyone who does not acknowledge that Jesus is from God or God has the spirit of Antichrist. Has. So this man that said Jesus had to repent of racism, he is of an Antichrist spirit. He's going to hell, basically, if he doesn't repent. Then it says what you heard was coming and is already active in the world. So all the Antichrist thoughts and doctrines and religions will culminate at the very end to one being the son of perdition there's only two that have been labeled the son of perdition Judas Iscariot and the uh, Antichrist and he will then form a coalition take over the world as much as possible not every nation and then he will be a substitute for God doing away with all other religions right and he will sit in the temple as if he is God and Surprise, surprise, he's actually the one that will destroy Babylon. See, people think God destroys Babylon. Oh, no. See, God is always Jehovah sneaky, right? <laughs> he will actually use the very being that is against him to destroy the very thing that kicked off this entire false religion. <laughs> See, that's why he sits up there laughing. Because, you know, his enemies and all the nations rage against him. Our job is to make his enemies his footstool, obviously through kingdom principles, not through weapons. Um, just want to clarify that so we don't have, you know, Secret Service show up. Um, <laughs> but it, it's just fascinating it, how in the church there are Marxist ideologies, there are people that say they're Christian, that uh, support abortion. I mean, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So we have to know that what people are saying doesn't line up with the Word of God. And so here, the allegiance is to Jesus the Christ. He's the only person that deserves our full loyalty and allegiance because He is the only one that was God-made flesh and then He was resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father. So He's now in the true heavenly tabernacle. Okay? There is no priestly order, tabernacle of human, that can trump this. Therefore, Jesus is the only person that deserves our allegiance. And any religion that tries to trump him or replace him is false and of the Antichrist. Uh, which, by the way, in case y'all didn't know, progressivism is a religion. Now, in verse 3 it says, Since every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so the Messiah also had to bring some sacrifice. But since he didn't qualify to be an earthly priest, remember he's of the tribe of Judah, not Levi, and there were already priests who offer sacrifices prescribed by the law, he offered in heaven a perfect sacrifice. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. He was a lamb slain before the genesis of the world, correct? So he was the, the reality of the redemption of Jesus Christ was already played out in a, a, a done situation in heaven. So that's kind of like you know, the vision that you have set before you. And so the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit already saw this happening. Therefore, we see throughout history in the Bible, He would speak forth the prophecies. And that's why Isaiah said, By His stripes you are healed, because He was viewing the Messiah's work from the present tense, because that's how God viewed it. Then later you see Peter, who's like, past tense, you have been healed. You're already healed. How could David live as a king priest? How could he have a tabernacle with the ark in it where the sacrifices were happening 10 miles down 
from Jerusalem because he by faith pulled the future into his present. So when you live in the prophetic paradigm of your life, you can actually accelerate the things you're waiting for. And I think he was also a foreshadow of Jesus. Well, of course, he was a time. <clears throat> but still, he broke the law. Right, exactly. But by faith and living in the present, he didn't. It's crazy. It's crazy. Your brain will go, you know. So again, though, I think sometimes we prolong our wait because we assign some intangible set amount of time that has to occur. And sometimes we don't even know what the time is. We just think we're waiting for the promises. When actually the Lord's like, hey, how about you begin to live in now faith, pull that future into the present, and by the way, wait doesn't mean you're just kicking back, watching some Fox News, eating some, you know, cookies and drinking some coffee, okay? The word wait means you're intertwining yourself in Him. So your roots become intermingled, and it's not as easy to uproot you in the winds and the waves. Does that make sense? So you're just, you're entwining yourself. You're becoming strong in Him. You may see hey, I just burned my fingers on the oven. They're supposed to, you know, blister and hurt and all that. But it's like, no, because Jesus said I was healed. Therefore, I'm not going to allow that in my body. And we're all at different levels, correct, of revelation, whether it's healing, whether it's prosperity, whatever it is. Like that last song. Man, I'm thinking about, like, you know, the before and after, and he works in the darkness and all that stuff. I mean, I was, like, thinking about, man, mono. You know, came out of that. That was a horrible situation. Um, there were like three distinct ones. I couldn't help but think about poverty and my hair falling out, wondering, you know, how are we going to get out of this mess? And, you know, it brought us out. I mean, I'm sure we can all look at things, and then we can also all look at different things where we're wondering why God didn't do something. Well, you know, we know the disconnect's not Him, right? So anyway, I think it's just important to understand that in Jesus Christ's mind, He offered a perfect sacrifice in heaven before He actually ever became a man. However, when you look at Him, remember um, Mary Magdalene, I think? She, you know, kept wanting to hug Him. She didn't want to let Him go. And He's like, you know, hey, I got a quick errand I need to run. But I'm going to be back. So go tell everybody you saw me. I'll be right back. What did he do? He went and offered his blood in heaven and he cleansed the defilement of the first fall, which was uh, Lucifer. He cleansed the defilement in heaven, made everything so that, and of course at the resurrection, all those that had died in Christ were able to go to heaven to where we now don't have to go to paradise. We're instantly with the one that we love. So all of this was a heavenly situation, not an uh, so earthly situation situation and it's almost an oversimplification of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ but Paul is speaking to those who understood the earthly priesthood and what was required so the sacrifice of Jesus offers so much more than the need to bring a sacrifice obviously but Paul is showing that he fulfilled the law by offering a perfect sacrifice once and for all we know it was himself and he offered himself in heaven as well to the father and this is fascinating. This you can ponder this, and, you know, and it just blows your mind. A lot of people that have wrong ideas about the Father, they think that He's just waiting to kill them, waiting to squish them. He's never pleased, never satisfied. And again, this is years and years of false doctrine. Okay, but the reality is that when Jesus or when Father looked at the situation on Earth and saw that we were helpless to save ourselves, he, he came up with an answer for us. So it was never, you know, and I've talked about this before, we're like, you know, like let's say Mike's, you know, Father God, and he's mad, you know, at something, you know, and I'm holding him back, holding him back, you know. That's not what it is. That's not Jesus holding the Father back from destroying us. It's the Father saw our need and out of compassion and obsessive love for us, he then sent his son who willingly offered himself for us, forever changing his nature. So God has always been for us. Always. He's never been against us. 
However, the caveat is he's also a lion. And in his extreme generosity, there will come a point where the age of grace ends and the days of wrath begins. And with the same measure of generosity will be the same measure of wrath that is released because he was over and above accessible for us to believe in him. And those who refuse to follow him that are actually against him and actively coming after him, those he will kill. So it's, you know, you got to have both. It's maturity to know the Lamb and to ponder redemptive realities and be overwhelmed by his compassion and love. But it's also on the other side maturity to understand the lion and he is not to be messed with, nor is he tame. And he will know those who are written in his book of life. And if you're not, you're S O L. Sinfully overly lost. <laughs> okay. Now, in verse 5, it says, The priests on earth served in a temple that has been a copy modeled after the heavenly sanctuary. A shadow of the reality. For when Moses began to construct the tabernacle of God... Wait. For when Moses began to construct the tabernacle, comma, God warned him and said, You must precisely follow the pattern... I revealed to you on Mount Sinai. But now Jesus, but now Jesus, the Messiah, has accepted priestly ministry which far surpasses theirs since he is a catalyst of a better covenant which contains far more wonderful <coughs> promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have needed a second one to replace it. Okay, now that obliterates you got to follow the law. That's what that's talking about. It's talking about Moses, it's talking about his ministry, it's talking about the first five books of the Torah, or what they call the law. Now, here's what's interesting. You must precisely follow the pattern I revealed to you. Why? Why? I think that is the, that, that's just the copy of what is actually in heaven. And the work of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. It had to be Precise. He had to do exactly everything the Father told him because it was actually setting up the coming of Jesus Christ. And so all those things had to be precise and it was a pattern of the heavenly. Okay, now the word copy is a really neat word. It is, quote, a model of behavior as an example to be imitated. So if you got like a future construction project, you know how they'll, like they'll build those little models, you know, and it gives you a picture of what's coming, right? So all of that was a picture of what's coming, but instead they became religious with it. Um, so all the details, like when they do those models, they'll have like the bushes and the flowers and the people and, you know, the little buildings, kind of like that. Who's that football player that has, he's with that insurance company and he's like built this entire city um, and you know like you got Susie that's walking down this sidewalk nationwide is on your side but you have like the sidewalk and all the little things it's like man you sure have uh, yeah. put your retirement to good use that's exactly what God was doing is providing that uh, model for us and here's something that a lot of people miss he did all of this source from love not law so he gave the Israelites a model of the heavenly sanctuary. And then he sent Jesus who accepted and precisely followed the priestly model. The priests of the old covenant did these things because the law said so. But as one born outside of the law slain before the foundation of the world, he sourced his fulfillment of it because he loved Father himself and others. Oh wait, I thought he came to fulfill the law. Yes, but he was slain before the genesis of the world. Therefore, he completed his work before the law was even introduced. Tilt, 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 tilt. Got it. Clear as mud. All right, Matthew 22, 37 through 40 in the English Standard. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, this was a question when the scribes and, 
you know, lawyers, you know, they wanted to know what was the greatest commandment in the law. So he went here. The word depend literally means in the uh, ancient language to hang, not hand, hang and suspend. The same root word, but as a verse, it's used in Acts 5.30 and 10.39 where it talks about, and it's actually a verb, I'm sorry, the same root word, but as a verb, it's used in Acts 5.30 and 10.39 where it talks about how they hanged him on wood. That word hanged is the verb of the word depend in Matthew 22.40. Okay, did y'all get that? So it's the same word, except once a verb and one is, I'm not sure, the two commandments depend all the law. Well, that kind of sounds like a verb too. Okay, so what this means is that all the law and the prophets were fulfilled in the one that hung from the tree because love came and love fulfilled it all for us. So he's saying these two commandments hang on love. Love hung on a cross. Therefore, the law and the prophets are dependent on him. Okay? Now, in Colossians, I want to look at this in both the English Standard Version and in the Passion Translation. So in the English Standard, it says that by canceling Jesus, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, he nailed it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by tri triumphing over them in him. Now the Passion says, he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. And I think this is a great scripture for those that have spent time in prison or jail, that if he was able to cancel an old arrest warrant and every legal violation on our record, if you're born again and spirit-filled, that's your evidence right there for a clean record. In Jesus' name. So he erased it all. Our sins, our stained soul. Remember the guilt and the accusation that we sometimes would feel as sinners? He deleted it all. And they cannot be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed into his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Now we can't see it, so who's seeing that? The principalities and powers. The enemy. I wish we could see it. That'd probably be a good idea. Because maybe we wouldn't live from a sin consciousness all the time. Instead, we would live from a God consciousness. And then it says, Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon, number one, all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. It doesn't get much plainer. I mean, I don't know how to make it more plainer to a Christian. You are innocent. It's got nothing on you. Yeah. You don't have to fulfill any laws. If you sin, according to John, the beloved, we have an advocate in heaven who not only forgives us, but he cleanses us from the unrighteousness that was the source of the sin, right, that was committed. It's a win-win. So when people say, well, I'm, you know, I'm a sinner saved by grace, just a worm trying to love Jesus. <laughs> it's stupid. It really is. And so then what happens is when you still feel that you are under some type of law other than the law of love and liberty and the Spirit, then what happens is the people, the people, the Nephilim spirits, the principalities and powers, see it. It's like probably to them, it's like a, an absence of light. Because revelation is light. Light is revelation. The more light you have, the more you have it in your spirit, your soul, and even your bloodstream, according to Tess. So the enemy, he can tell which ones truly have been pierced by the revelation of righteousness. So what does he do? Those that don't believe this, he goes after them and provides them evidence that everything they believe is true. It's a cycle. It's like an abusive cycle. You're in an abusive relationship with an ex. <clears throat> and Jesus, your true bridegroom, is like, hey, 
if you will interact with me from a place of innocence as a bride with war boots on, not a widow just scrounging for you know crumbs in the dirt, then what will happen is you will then rise up to the level that you need to live. Get this. This this right here. I mean, I know it's not a typical Mother's Day message, you know, but listen to this. So this is wisdom. I I, I got to read it in its entirety. I mean, we don't have anything better to do other than eating great food and spending time with our family. But listen to this. Proverbs 1, and it's talking about wisdom, how she preaches courageously to those who stop to listen. Verse 22. (laughs) So I'm a little excited. Foolish ones. How much longer will you cling to your deception? How much longer will you mock wisdom? Cynical scorners who fight the facts. Oh, is this referring to BLM? Come back to your senses and be restored to reality. Don't even think about refusing my rebuke. Rebuke is a mercy gift, right? Wisdom will rebuke. Hey, (coughs) McFly, quit overspending your money and pay your debt and you'll be a lot happier. You know, that's what what wisdom does. It's like, hey, it's not going to get better. You're going to have to make some changes, right? Then he says, don't you know that I'm ready to pour out my spirit of wisdom upon you and bring to you the revelation of my words that will make your heart wise? I've called you over and over, so you refuse to come to me. I've pleaded with you again and again, yet you've turned a deaf ear to my voice. Because you've laughed at my counsel and you've insisted on continuing your stubbornness, I will laugh when your calamity comes and will turn away from you at the time of your disaster. We have the lamb aspect, crying out, calling out for people to listen. And then there comes a point where, had it up to here, right? Now, I'm no longer going to talk to you. In fact, you're going to find yourself, you get yourself there. God doesn't put you in a mess. That's a lie. We get ourselves in a mess. And if we have scoffed or laughed at wisdom, then when the disaster comes, guess what wisdom's going to do? Laugh. Oh, I thought Jesus was compassionate and full of love. Uh-huh. But he's also the lion. Okay? And then, now this is those that are laughing at wisdom, not those that are making poor choices and they know it and they're you know, changing in their lives. Okay. Jesus has become for us the wisdom of God. He's the same here as he is now. But get this, it gets worse. Make a joke of my advice, will you? Then I'll make a joke out of you. When the storm clouds of terror gather over your head, when dread and distress consume you and your catastrophe comes like a hurricane, you'll cry out to me, but I'm not going to answer. Then it will be too late to expect my help. When desperation drives you to search for me, I will be nowhere to be found. Because you have turned up your nose at me and closed your eyes to the facts and refused to worship me in awe, because you've scoffed at my wise counsel and laughed at my correction, now you will eat the bitter fruit of your own ways. You've made your own bet. Now lie in it. How do you like that? <laughs> like an idiot, you've turned away from me and chosen destruction and said, did you notice that? Chosen destruction. See, there are people that think they'll get away with it. That's why you have serial killers and murderers and bank robbers and all these people. They think they'll get away with it. You set your self-satisfied smugness will kill you. That word smugness means abundant prosperity. See, all these people that are seeking to destroy our country and to destroy the image of God and people that worship Him, it's because of their abundant prosperity. Their money has gone to their head. They think they're gods. But the one who... All, now, this is important. This is what I want you to hear. The one who always listens to me, get this, will live in un disturbed in a heavenly peace, free from fear, confident and courageous, you will rest unafraid and sheltered from the storms of life. So it tells you if you're having a problem, we need to concentrate on. Where did you miss wisdom? Right? Right? But, oh my gosh, I'm just, my mind is blown away. I thought Christians are mostly under attack. Right? Oh, my kids ain't serving the Lord, and my health is, you know, oh, praise you, Jesus. So, He's teaching me to 
you know, be humble and glory in my sufferings. Yeah, this is, I've heard this stuff. This is my thorn in the side, child. God, pray, 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 pray. I'll be healed one day in heaven. I mean, seriously, the, I'm mocking it, but this is what people believe in the church because God's sovereign and He's in control. Well, my Bible says the one who will always, always is a key word, listen to me, will live undisturbed in the heavenly peace. Please. Peace. Free from fear. You don't have to fear. You don't have to fear car wrecks. You don't have to fear your house burning down. You don't have to fear it being broken into. Because you know why? Wisdom will say, hey, you didn't lock your door. You need to turn back and lock the door. Hey, that car that's been driving by several times, go out there and mad dog them. Hey, whatever it is, he'll tell you, hey, quit eating this. Start eating that. Go for walks. Do the He's... His wisdom is crying out for us. And then, free from fear, blah, blah, you will rest unafraid, sheltered from the storms of life. Okay, what does this mean? You're living above the snake line. That's what it means. You're living above the snake line. It is a supernatural natural. That's what it is. It's where his super meets your natural. His super is you've already been healed. Natural, hey, take vitamin D so you're not getting sick all the time. His super is divine protection, yet his natural is, hey, maybe you should go this direction today, not that direction, because who knows, there might be a wreck that would take you out. You see what I mean? Hey, his supernatural, yes, I will protect you on your travels, but hey, you shouldn't take this trip right now. You see what I mean? It's very practical to follow the Lord and listen to wisdom, and wisdom's never based in a fear of what might happen. So that's not wisdom, by the way. Well, this, I don't even know how I got on. And this. right here, where it says he was not their prisoner, they <laughs> were this they were his. Mm. You know what? That's just a whole that opens up just a big because a lot of Christians see Jesus as the victim of the cross, the victim of the Romans, the victim of the Jewish, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right. the council. He was the victim, and it says right here he was not their prisoner. Nope. That he. That they were his prisoner, they were doing what he a hook in his their nose. Mm -hmm. They were just fulfilling what he had already decided. To and do. the reason they became a hook and uh, uh, the reason they were able to be hooked <laughs> is because their hearts of unbelief. Right. Like if you look at the Pharaoh, so on the Pharaoh, you know it says that God hardened his heart and God did this and blah blah. If you look in the original language. What it means is that his heart was already hard and God used it to his advantage to get his people free. But people, So the I condition think, of your heart, right. Judas wasn't a victim. Right. Judas refused to hear what the Spirit was saying through Jesus Christ. And he betrayed him, not because it was some sovereign, he was elected by God to be an idiot. That wasn't the case. His heart was fully susceptible to the enemy coming into him. He's one of the few that the, the devil, guys, yeah. Satan, entered his heart. Now that's a interesting deal. And so it's a, it always comes back to our choices. Mm -hmm. and, but I think it's a perception right here for Christians. Yeah. If you don't see Jesus as the conqueror right. and as the, you know, the, the one that is the overcomer, mm -hmm. Then you're going to see him as the victim, and then and you're, you're a victim. portraying yourself as <clears throat> Jesus. Mm -hmm. You're going to play the victim. You know, I've had it with uh, two types of Christians: fake ones, and then uh, victims. The only reason, as a Christian, that we become a victim is we believe a lie. You can walk out of it. I was telling a guy, you know, we've all had hard things. We've all. Uh, I was telling. I had like, two or three bouts of depression when I was young. Uh, anxiety that was crippling at times. And uh, I told him, I said, but you know what was funny? Is one time after six weeks of tormenting myself, I was like, Lord, I can't live this way anymore. You know how we do. Make sure we have a mirror so we can see how you know sad and depressed we are. <laughs> and the Lord said, you can stop it right now by choosing to trust me and believe what I say. Uh -huh. I was all, Oh, I can't. 
Uh-huh, yeah, you can just walk right out of that fear right now. Okay, so I did. I made a decision, walked right out of it, fast forward, right after that, the whole situation changed. I was driving over to Overpass uh, by Brady and, you know, North Prince, or South, North, South Prince, uh, coming oh, over shoot. to Overpass. Yeah, well, not Hall, I was over on Prince, but um, by Mike's shop. The Overpass by Mike's shop. Mm -hmm. And I, all of a sudden I had this revelation. I said, hey, Lord, um, about the whole trial we just went through, he's like, yeah, it could have been shortened. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I had a revelation. That six weeks was my fault. It didn't have to last six weeks. The moment I chose to believe was the moment we, we walked out of that circumstance, right? I've had it several times. So sometimes we are without help. We're not sure what to do. And the Lord has to maybe give us a prophetic word or something to help us out because we don't see a scrapbook of scoundrels, whatever it is, so we can get out of the current situation we're in. But there's the other side of it is that we are choosing at times to be victims. We are choosing at times to stay in a situation where we can literally turn off the switch and walk out of that room, lock the door behind us, and never enter again. God gave me a, uh, just a phrase, and it was a, a, a hothouse Christian. You know, when you have orchids, and when you try to cultivate, they're very finicky. They have to have their, you know, you take them out of the rainforest, where, and then they have to be put into a greenhouse, and, you know, or sprayed and misted and watered a certain way and fed a certain way, and, and if you get out of that perfect environment, then they die and wilt. I mean, that to me describes a lot of Christianity in this country yes. right now, and probably in a lot of the Western Hemisphere. Of when you go to church, you're in that environment. Yeah. And then when you get out, it's like no change. Yeah, no change. <clears throat> oh goodness, we got, we got to get this because <laughs> we're wasting time. So he stripped them of every weapon, spiritual authority, power to accuse us. By the power of the cross, Jesus led them as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. Like Chris, Christy, good grief. Kathy was saying. That's my sister. <laughs> now, I can't help but think of the Nephilim in this. You know, and I've taught about it. But just think. Here, are, you know, you got the giants, part human, part angel. And they were counterfeit. See, the, the enemy always sends a counterfeit, guys. Always, always, always. He always does that. If you'll learn that one thing, you'll be able to spot the fake spouse, the fake job, the fake whatever, fake friend, fake, fake whatever, because the enemy always does that. Well, same thing. The giants, to pollute the bloodline, I mean, there's many aspects of that story, but here's the other thing. They were a counterfeit of who we are now as superhuman. We are superhuman. And a lot of people in the church don't even realize that when we're in Christ Jesus. So we know that the incident on Mount Hermon where the decision was made for the watcher angels to sleep with human women is where unprecedented evil was unleashed in the world. In fact, to the Jews, that was the biggest problem, even over Adam. It accelerated evil to such a degree that only, degree that only Noah and his family were salvageable. And finally... Jesus went to the base of Mount Hermon where Peter confessed that he was the Christ and Jesus drew a line in the sand saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against my ecclesia. Guess who he was talking to? The principalities and powers. He picked a fight. He went to heaven and sat down and said, Tag, y'all are it. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't do like Obama and say, here's the line in the sand. Right, kept he moving. never enforced. <laughs> Now, you might say, well, that's not very nice, Jesus. You pick a fight with them, and then you say, okay, guys, make them my footstool. <coughs> but he has more faith in us, and sometimes we have. Why? Because he knows that Jesus Christ is in us. Okay? So, here's the key for you to get. Jesus stripped away every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse you by canceling out every legal violation, by fulfilling the law in our place, and taking the punishment due us according to the law. Then, by his death, he canceled out the old covenant and instituted the new. Canceled the old. That is so important. Therefore, 
If a believer, Christ follower, tries to live under the law versus grace in Christ, they rearm <clears throat> principalities and powers and restore their authority and power to accuse. Yeah. 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 It's stupid. Love, not law, freed us from the power of the kingdom of darkness and Nephilim dominion. And he showed us what a kingdom system looks like. He became an example for us, a model of who we are now. Superhuman, God-man, king-priest. Uh, and here's, you know, here's a mother's, let me just throw in a mother's name thought, because it is mother's name. Probably should do this. He prophesied to the first mother that through your seed, he was going to accomplish all of this. God has an, an uncanny ability to take, I think I said this Friday, to take the very source of the failure and include them in the story of redemption. Mm -hmm. Every one of your woundings healed is your anointing. Okay? So that's what's incredible. As mothers, as women who were deceived, right? Eve was deceived. All right. He then said, through a woman, the seed will come, who will crush the devil's head. So that's why the enemy loves abortion so much. Using mothers to kill their own in the womb. The safest place that it should be. I know that just took a horrible turn for Mother's Day. But mothers need to wake up to the fact that they are being used to sacrifice their children to convenience, to sin, and all of that stuff. And that will never be Christian. I don't care what Catholics for abortion people say or progressive Christians say or whatever it is. That will never be a Christian practice ever. Well, and I think we're talking about this identity. I think women that are pregnant, they don't feel like they're a mother until they actually give birth. They don't realize they're a mother from the time of that conception. Yes. Forever change their identity. So yeah. you can either be, you know. For your child or not. Right. A murdering mother mm -hmm. or a nurturing mother. Mm-hmm. We probably should get off that, you know, yeah. subject because it might ruin someone's mother's day. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, now. In <laughs> Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, the English Standard, which, of course, I understand fear and blah, blah, I, you know, when you're, you get pregnant. I mean, I understand that. But I don't understand killing off your baby because you, you know, you think that's a good idea. Because it's inconvenient, mostly. And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So that's the, the purpose of the fivefold ministry. Uh, yeah, ministry. Did I say mystery? Anyway, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. So the only standard of who we are to look like is Jesus Christ. Everything from his character, how he thought, how he ministered, how he addressed issues like missing his ride so he just walked on water, how he navigated through persecution, the miracles he did, everything. There's so much more to the work he did than simply bringing a sacrifice. Okay, that was his priestly duty. And Paul knew it, but again, he's attempting to show the Hebrews how silly it would be to return to a system that's inferior and cannot make one righteous. He's a catalyst of a better covenant. Okay, so Jesus looking at me to see how much is left, so let's finish up. <laughs> For if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have needed a second one to replace it, but God revealed the defect and limitation of the first when he said to his people, Look, the day will come, declares the Lord, when I will satisfy the people of Israel and Judah by giving them a new covenant. It will be an entirely different covenant than the one I made with their fathers. Did y'all notice that? Entirely different. When I led them by my hand out of Egypt, for they did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I rejected them, says the Lord. Now, real quick, the verse, uh, verse 7, the Greek for, for finding fault with it, he says to them, meaning that the law could never produce the God-man. That's what that's referring to. Okay, It's not anything else but that because man had to be born again due to sin-tainted blood. So his nature was fallen. He couldn't keep the law. It was impossible. So again, he saw our helplessness in the ability to redeem ourselves and make ourselves perfect morally. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, it says that the law actually strengthens sin. It's a supernatural power. So I'm more inclined to see that the fault is with us because of the fallen nature 
and all pre-saved people where the law was perfect, right? So the law was perfect. We had the sin nature. That's why it couldn't uh, uh, save us. Well, Nita, we've talked about when you focus in on the sin, you're more likely to sin. And to me, that's what the law did also. It did. It focused in on your sin. It, it reminded every, them every year on the Day of Atonement. Right. Every, you know, every year they were reminded of how they were sinners. Yeah. But the main point I want you to get is that Paul wrote this during the time of the Law of Moses. So he's saying that's <coughs> it. It's passing away. It's in the process of dying. That's some of the Greek. And we can see that he was directly addressing the Law of Moses and the covenant established after they left Egypt. So what does this mean? Read my lips. No Christian is supposed to follow the law of Moses under any circumstance. Verse 10. <laughs> For here is a covenant, this is God speaking, that I will one day establish with the people of Israel. I will embed my laws within their thoughts and fasten them onto their hearts. <gasps> I thought we're not supposed to follow the law. Give me a second. <laughs> I will be their loyal God. They will be my loyal people. And the result of this will be that everyone will know me as Lord. There will be no need at all to teach their fellow citizens or brothers saying you should know the Lord Jehovah. Since everyone will know me inwardly. So he takes an external system and he focuses on the inward change. From the most unlikely to the most distinguished. For I will demonstrate my mercy to them and will forgive their evil deeds and never remember again their sins. Okay, now... He's going to put his law in our hearts and minds. Doesn't that refer to the law of Moses? Okay, no, because, and here's why. If you look up the original word there, absolutely can refer to the law of Moses. But Jesus, what did he do? He reduced them to two, right? Mm -hmm. You follow love, you won't violate anything mm -hmm. in the Torah. So he also freed us from a lot of the laws there, like the food laws. You know, according to Mark 7 and, and other ones. Okay, now, I'm going to read to you uh, Romans 13, 8 through 10 in the Passion. Don't owe anyone anything except your outstanding debt to continually love one another. For the one who learns to love, here it is, has fulfilled every requirement of the law. Now, have you all ever met people that say they're Christian and they're under the law, are they very loving? I haven't met one yet. Yeah. That should be a clue right there. For the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and every other commandment can be summed up in these words. Love and value others the same way you love and value yourself. See, here's the thing. If you don't value others but you value yourself, you know what you are? A narcissist. If you don't value yourself but love others, guess what you are? An enabler. You have to love God first, love yourself, and then others. Now, love makes it impossible to harm another. So love fulfills all that the law requires. Again, he says it again. Okay, love is what he writes on our hearts and minds. Romans 5.5 5 is scriptural proof for that. But here's an interesting fact. The word agape didn't exist until the writing of the New Testament. It's a noun verb that they created because there was no word for God love. So they made it. Notice that the outward things of washings and food issues, etc. were not on Paul's mind nor mentioned. Why? Because those things were number one, prophetic of the complete work Christ was going to do, but also for the protection of the Israelites and to reinforce the need to approach God His way. Now get this. The word sin is to miss the mark, right? It's also to miss the way life is supposed to be. Okay, well, let's take let's take that to its full thought. Are you supposed to be sick? No. There's a mark that's been missed. Supposed to be poor? No. There's a mark that's been missed. You see what I mean? Now we're getting back to wisdom and doing what we're supposed to do. Isn't that interesting? So I don't want to just reduce it to adultery, reduce it to anger, things like that. It's like if you're not living 100% in, 
and the reality of how Jesus Christ lived on the earth, which I think is all of us here, we're not yet at that place, right? Then the work of salvation is getting in the Word and I shouldn't be poor. I shouldn't be sick. I should have soul peace. My relationships should be healthy. All of those great things. And if I miss my ride, then I may have to walk across the sea. I don't know. But the reality is that our life should look like Jesus Christ. So, all of those things were never meant to be carried unto, uh, or into the new covenant. And the final verse in chapter 8, this proves that by establishing this new covenant, the first is now obsolete, ready to expire, and about to disappear. And guess what? It did in A.D. 70. The fact that God said He was going to replace the old with the new reveals the defect and limitation of the first. God wanted a new covenant without defect that could only come through God becoming man so we could become God-men. When Jesus completed his work, he established the new covenant, making it obsolete. Obsolete means abrogate, which I had no idea what that means, so I looked it up. It's to abolish by formal or official means, annul by an authoritative act, repeal. Now, we couldn't get Obamacare repealed, but God repealed the law. <gasps> I mean, I can just hear people. <laughs> oh my God, this is heresy. No, because he condensed it, distilled it down to two. Okay. When people who say that they are Christ followers instead are law followers, they're trying to live under a law and a covenant that has been annulled and no longer exists. But what does Paul mean when he says it's becoming obsolete, growing old is ready to vanish away? Well, that would, you know, happened in A.D. 70 where the Romans destroyed the temple and for 2,000 years the Jews were scattered. Just think, those listening to me that feel you must keep the Old Testament laws, you need to hear this. What sense does it make to pursue the law and an old system that Jesus replaced with his new covenant when the best, let's say, use of your time is to pursue love? That'd be like, let's say that, you know, me and Mike met years ago, and he's a con artist after my wedding. It's <laughs> terrible. And I find out, and within a certain amount of time, I get the marriage annulled. What kind of idiot am I if I continue to stay with the con artist that's trying to take my money? You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The law was perfect because it came from the heart of God, yet it was incomplete in transforming the internal nature of man to be like God. Therefore, he annulled all of that and established a new covenant. So what sense does it make to keep trying to date your ex when you could just embrace your bridegroom? That's what it summed up in. And in fact, Romans, if I'm not mistaken, actually goes into that in that type of language. So... It just doesn't make any sense. Well, and you get some of the, uh, I won't say cult, I'll say sex. Sex, S-E-C-T-S. -E I was about to say, wow, I'm making it real right here. <laughs> well, but, you know, we're talking about like, like the Amish, where they are still back in the old whatever. And you, that you risk by still living back, like you're living back in those days, to be irrelevant. Irrelevant right. in today's <clears throat> world. And the Holy Spirit's invading spiritual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, to be not uh, spiritually relevant. Right. Well, and yes. Because you're still living like you were living. Well, one of the things that um, when I was studying how the Constitution, all that happened uh, in a great book, I was really aggravated because a lot of what all happened was because the founding fathers saw religion on an extreme. And we have to start understanding that the way we believe and what we say will have a negative or a positive impact on culture in a profound way. And even though during that time, I, I mean, we've talked about it. People were beaten, thrown in prison, some died. If you tried to preach without a license, forget it. You might find yourself dead, right? And so James Madison, John Adams, George Washington, and 
uh, Thomas Jefferson, all of them saw this and were even raised in those types of religions, the Puritans, you know, the Protestants, all that stuff. And they wanted nothing to do with it. And they saw the danger of state-controlled religion, even here in America. And so then later, they made the 14th Amendment. No state will make a law. The Founding Fathers didn't include that in there because they were afraid. They, they wanted to leave religious freedom to state rights. They didn't want to go all into that. If you as a state wanted God in your courtroom, you could have it. But the federal, national government would have no say-so in that. They, as a national government, could not tell you how to worship God, right? And then they passed the 14th Amendment, and now we've lost prayer in schools and God in courtrooms and the Ten Commandments and the you know, Christian symbolism on government property and all that stuff. And it was all because of the picture of religion that these men had. And so then you have today where we see the same thought happening where Christians think we should vote, vote pastors into office. What is that? We want a national state and national based religious person in office to legislate morals. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing, guys. If you are truly living like Jesus Christ, we will become the most attractive mm -hmm. religion out there that people will flock to. Remember that uh, youth meeting we had where it's like, how do we get the kids here? And how do we blah, 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 blah? And I'm all, yes, Sherry, <laughs> uh, get Holy Spirit here and they will come. Well, how do we get Holy Spirit here? Worship. You know, oh, and that's what did we do. We shifted everything to worship. And all of a sudden, the kids are healing broken bones and doing this and doing that. And we're like 150 kids, gangbangers, there's people there. You know, we had to have bouncers and stuff. It wasn't pretty. Some of it was messy. But all of a sudden, Holy Spirit's showing up, so much so that religious people shut it down. So that's the thing. You carry Holy Spirit and you heal the sick. You give people hope. You impart peace. You're like, do you want to feel God? Right? Now all of a sudden we're more attractive than Islam, progressivism, all of that other stuff because He is the beauty that nations long for. Right? But he, people are not interested in religion. They're not interested in victim, victimhood and Christianity. They're not, uh, uh, you know, looking for any religion and legalism that tells them do this and don't do that. They want a relationship. And if we give it to them, we can take this nation back. And not through governmental means. I could care less. I would rather have Donald Trump that pisses everybody off than a fake Christian like Biden is. Right? And Pelosi... Let's, we should we we should care for the poor. We should, well, you know, that's what she does, right? And it's ridiculous. <laughs> what we need to do is empower people to no longer be poor, and then we can change a state and change a nation from one of poverty to one of uh, uh, prosperity. Well, and it's one thing to get up and say this is what we need to do, and then have in your own state. <laughs> the highest amount of homeless living on the streets that of anybody in America. Right. So it starts on your own front step. Let's just put it that way. Amen. Let's pray for our time and then go have some good Mother's Day food. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you that you saw our inability to save ourselves, to make ourselves morally perfect. And until the time that Jesus Christ came, you instituted a nation you gave them laws to protect them, to also govern them and to preserve their identity so that out of their own would come God in the flesh who would fulfill all the requirements of the law, including the punishment. He became a curse for us to free us from any curse. So we thank you for that. We thank you that because of Jesus Christ and his blood, we're now innocent and a curse without a cause cannot alight. And we can live above the snake line we can live in undisturbed heavenly peace we can be sheltered from any storm as long as we listen to wisdom and father i think a lot of wisdom is needed in uh, christ followers today so father we want to have an ear that hears what the spirit is saying we want to have discernment 
We want to understand what other people are saying, that by what they say, we know if they're for you or against you. We need just some common, practical things empowered by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit so that we can turn things around in this nation, but also, Father, to get us out of our hothouse mentality as believers where we're okay as long as we're within the four walls of the church, but, man, when we step out, we're like deer caught in headlights. The ability to face problems and overcome them is a really a lacking situation in the body of Christ. But we are not victims. We're not the prisoner of anybody except for Jesus Christ. And so we're prisoners of hope, Father, expectation. Help us to present that picture of what it is to be truly a Christ follower who's a prisoner of hope, who can tell people it is going to get better. To make Him attractive, once again, to people, to sinners, Father, I ask that you help us do that. To be people of generosity, but not socialism, not wealth distribution. People that are willing to listen, to offer solutions, not just, I'll pray for you. Father, we want to put our uh, money where our mouth is. We want to put feet to what we believe. And I believe all of us in this room are doing that. We want to go to another level of that. And so, Father, this morning, we give our tithes to you, not under any law. The tithe was way before the law, according to the order of Melchizedek, in fact. But we don't give it under any obligation of the law. We give it as our, our pledge of loyalty to Jesus Christ, that he is the King of kings, Lord of lords. To him belongs the glory of all the nations and the wealth. And, Father, we ask that you take what we give. Give us wisdom on how to distribute it. And, Father, I pray that you always keep us in a position to have first